Father, our heart's desire is that Christ would be praised in all things. And so, Lord, we ask today that you would guide and direct us through your spirit and the ministry of the word, that we would seek that Christ and Christ alone would be praised. Father, we think of those in our congregation who are struggling with health issues and sickness, and Lord, we ask that you would strengthen them and encourage them, Father, Lord. We pray that, that you would bring healing according to your will to them. Father, now we ask that you would just work in our midst. May your spirit take your word, apply it to our hearts and lives so that we would leave this place different than when we first came in. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're continuing our look at the pilgrim's purpose. The pilgrim's purpose. And to discuss what we talked about last week, just to quickly review, we looked at the urgency of the pilgrim's pur purpose. And we saw that urgency being given by the fact that the end of all things is near. So look with me in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as the one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So again, this passage or this section begins with a focus on the urgency of the pilgrim's purpose. And we saw that as history brings itself to a conclusion, the end of all things is at hand. That should cause us to, instead of losing our minds, instead of, instead of being uh, hysterical about things, it should cause us to recognize that we need to pray. And so we looked at last week, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so that conclusion of history that brings that urgency calls us to pray and to be praying more and more often. And we spent time looking at the necessity and the urgency of continuing in prayer before the Lord. But the pilgrim's purpose is sort of um, summed up for us in the end of this passage that we are to, in everything, glorify God through Jesus Christ. But how, in particular, does Peter call us to do that? And that's where we're going to look at this morning, the pattern of the pilgrim's purpose. And we see in verse 8 the emphasis that Peter points us to. Above all, keep what? Loving one another. The first thing we see regarding the pilgrim's purpose is that in the pattern of the pilgrim's purpose is that of sincere love. Peter calls us to genuine, to heartfelt, to sincere love for one another. In fact, he says, above all, love one another or keep loving one another 
earnestly. Now, this isn't the first time that Peter has mentioned the, the topic and, and the focus of brotherly love. We see it at the very beginning of the passage. That as we perf- purify our souls by obedience for the truth, that should produce within us then. So if we're looking to be obedient to what God has said, what should that produce within us? Sincere love for each other. That when we think about what it means to walk the Christian life, when you think about what it means to be obedient to the fact and all the truths that Peter has been pointing us to, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the primary ways that that works its way out in our lives is how we relate to each other. And it requires that we have sincere brotherly love. And then with that sincere brotherly love, we are to act it out by loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. That our love isn't directed towards or focused on ourselves, but rather our love is seeking to truly and earnestly love others. Now, Peter here in the first chapter focuses on brotherly love. Why does he call it brotherly love? Well, the reality is is that we who were strangers and aliens, we were in one sense pilgrims to the things of the Lord. We are no longer those things in Christ, but now we are fellow citizens with the saints and we are all members of what? The household of God. We are members of a family. And so as a family... We are to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. This camaraderie that we have, the connection of the death and burial of Christ as our only hope, binds us together by the Spirit so that we can can genuinely love each other. It should engender true, genuine love for each other. So much so that our love for others in the church is as fervent and perhaps more fervent than our actual families. In Matthew 10, 21, we see that we, that brother will deliver brother over to death, father to his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. That, that the hope that we have in Christ will actually turn members of our own family against us. And yet our love for Christ compels us to endure such things for the sake of the kingdom. Now, if this is how your own flesh and blood are treating you for the sake of Christ, then you, we are made, as God has designed us, to fellowship with each other, to know each other. So we need a place where we can find hope, where we can find comfort, where we can find those who love us. And where is that? The church. As John tells us, or Jesus tells us in John 13, 34 through 35, that he gives us a new commandment that we what? Love one another. But what does that love look like? It's love. We love one another as Christ has loved us. We are to love one another. And then this is something that has been true 2,000 years ago and is just as true today. How does the world know that we are Christ's disciples? How is it evident? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
It's an all-important task. It is one of the things that the world looks on and they see us loving each other and that makes us different than the rest of the world. So we are to have sincere love for each other. Now what does this love look like? And Peter gives us some hints about this. The first thing is that he shows us this love must be a priority. Notice how he begins in verse 8. Above all, he is punching or emphasizing what Jesus himself emphasized, that we must love one another. It must be a priority. Now, when we think of the end of the age, When we think of the end of the world, one of the things we discussed is that the tendency of humanity is not to be sober-minded and self-controlled, but to lose our minds, to jump into a panic. And when we jump into a panic, when we lose our minds, we become focused, not outwardly, but where do we become focused? On ourselves. And so this emphasis on making sure that as the end of all things is at hand, we are to keep loving one another, that priority is necessary. In fact, Jesus anticipated what would happen in the end of the age. That as we are delivered up to tribulation, as we're put to death, as we're hated by all nations for His name's sake, many will fall away, betray one another and hate one another. There'll be false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased, what grows cold? Love. The love of many will grow cold cold. Jesus prophesied here that believers are going to turn on believers, that they're going to hate each other as we see the day approaching. And as believers fall away from their faith, they would turn spitefully to the church. And we see this today. You see people who have quote-unquote deconstructed their faith And there is a vitriol, there is a hatred that is laid at the feet and pointed at people in congregation, in churches, that they can't ever seem to get over. It's it's strong, this hatred that they have. And so there's a a temptation. You know, you come to church, you you seek to build relationships, you seek to, to reach out to individuals, and then those individuals end up turning on you. And that hurts. It's painful. It's painful for those that you've sacrificed for, that you've invested in, to treat you with such contempt. And here's the thing. We shouldn't be surprised that this happens. Jesus promises us that it would happen. But here's the danger that we can let our love grow cold as a result of the pain that we have faced personally from other people. So Peter's words, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, becomes all the more important for us to keep in mind and to focus on. Love must be a priority. Tenderheartedness is the call to believers, not cold-heartedness. We're called to love each other as Christ loved us. And there's the key. How many times have we forsaken and spurned the name of Christ? And does His love ever fail? No. 
And if He is our pattern of love, then should we not seek to have that same love for others, even those who spurn us and hurt us? So love must be a priority. We must make it a priority. We must strive earnestly for it. Because the the hurt that we have felt from other people that have turned away from us because we stand for the truth of Christ, there are other people in this congregation that feel those same hurts. And so we have the opportunity to minister to others, to show love and compassion in the body of Christ as we, above all, keep loving one another. Which brings us secondly to the point that we see that love must be continual. Love must be continual. Love how the ESV translates this. Keep loving one another earnestly. What does that assume? What, do they, what does that assume is already happening? We're loving one another. Peter is assuming that the body of Christ that is called out from this world and dwelt with the Spirit will be as Christ said it will be. How will all people know that we're His disciples? We love each other. And so Peter's assuming that. You will be loving each other. So keep it up. It's a continual thing. When we think of our brothers and sisters, particularly here as you're joined together in this community of faith at BBC, our first thought should be that we love them and we love all of them. You know, I think as a, if you think about what the advantages are and disadvantages of what we quote and call a small church, we're a small church. And, you know, we maybe don't have all the fancy, shiny activities to offer we don't, you know, we certainly don't have the BBC jet, although we got the business meeting coming up, so maybe that, no. I mean, we, we, we can't offer many of the programs that larger congregations can offer, but you know what we can offer, and I think what can become more authentic in smaller churches is love for each other. We call ourselves a church family. And that's to be seen in the way in which we act towards each other. We shun the worldliness that is around us. We don't seek to exist to be just a social club. We seek to glorify Christ by loving each other in this congregation. And so Peter is calling us to say, keep it up. Continually love your brothers and sisters in Christ, persist in this calling. And then he points us to probably the one thing that we don't like the most about what love involves. Notice what he says at the end of verse 8. What does love do? We talked about love as an an attitude we're to have to each other, but then what is the action of love that he focuses on? What does love do? It covers a multitude of of sins. Love is a priority. Love must be continual. Love must be forgiving. Peter commends love to the church because it is vital, vital for the church to exist. Why is this love vital for the church to exist? Why is love necessary? Because love brings forgiveness. Love brings forgiveness. Forgiveness. Look, it doesn't take you very long to spend time in anybody's, anybody's uh, presence that at some point or another, 
They're going to get on your nerves. You're going to get on their nerves. Things are going to be said. Things are going to happen. And guess what? You're going to hurt each other. Why? Because we're still fallen sinners. We still act selfishly. No one here is perfect. The only person presence here, whose presence is here that is perfect is that of Christ. And so we all fail. We all will fail each other. Each and every one of us in here today, we're going to fail each other at some point. And that, that, that failure, I don't mean to minimize the failure. I don't mean to minimize that when we sin against each other, like it's no big deal. It is a big deal. But how does, how does a group of people get past constantly infighting and bickering? Well, he did this, so I'm going to do this. I mean, how do we get to that point where we're not tearing each other down, biting and devouring each other? And listen, this was a problem in the first century. It's a problem in churches today. You know, Christ tells us that the world will know us by our love, but frankly, I think the world looks on at churches and they think of churches as the last place where you find love because there's so much infighting and bickering. So how do we get past that? Love covers a few sins. Is that what he says? Love covers a multitude of sins. The disciples came to Christ and they asked him, how many times should I forgive my neighbor who sins against me? Is it seven times? And Jesus says, no, I tell you 70 times seven. So does that mean we get 490 times? That's not what he's saying. That's the right math, isn't it? I don't know. I'm terrible with math. The point of what he's telling us is that we need to Be forgiving and forgiving and forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. And so, if we're going to glorify God, you know, the Westminster Confession tells us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're here, we're created, we're designed to praise God. How do we do that? It's not just coming on Sundays and singing praises to him or listening to K-Love on your radios on, on, at home or putting a CD in and, and, and singing praise. That is not the only way we glorify God. In fact, Peter is saying you glorify God by loving each other and covering your sins against each other. That gives glory to God. Why? Well, because that is how God shows his love for us. God showed His love for us in that while we were still sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. And so as those who have been captivated by God's sovereign grace and love have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, what is now our ministry on earth? And Paul tells us that as God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting their trespasses against us, then He has now entrusted to us, what? The message of reconciliation. And it is a message that primarily calls out and says, be reconciled to God in Christ. But it also is a message that that reconciliation we have to God in Christ means that we reconcile with each other. We don't hold grudges. We don't have animosity. We don't despise our brothers and sisters. 
John sums this all up in his epistle. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us. See, if God is the example, if Christ is the example of love, was there anything lovely about us that caused God to love us? So should we then make our love conditional upon the loveliness of our brothers and sisters in Christ? No. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If God so loved us, then what ought we to do? Love one another. And then He says something sort of puzzling. No one has ever seen God. You know, God is a spirit. We've never been able to physically stand in His presence and see Him. And if anybody here says that they, were, they saw God at some point, you haven't. The Word of God is pretty clear. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, what are we able to display to each other? God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. So Peter calls us, above all, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. This is vital for the church. If we're not doing this, the church will not glorify God. We're to be, as God is towards us, long-suffering, patient, kind, forgiving, and loving in all things. So the first pattern of the pilgrim's purpose as we glorify God is sincere love. The second thing is that we are then to have stewardship through service. We see this in verse 9, 10, and 11 to the, to the, like the first half of 11. He says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you speak, whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We see, first of all, we serve through hospitality. We serve through hospitality. Now, when God tells you to do something, is it optional? All right, you didn't seem very clear on that. When God tells you to do something, is it optional? Wow, that still was pretty weak. If God tells you to do something, is it optional? No. So what does God tell us to do in verse 9? Show hospitality to one another. Now, the essential idea here in the context of the first century is that, that believers would be opening up their homes and allowing believers to stay there. Now, remember, the environment was that of persecution. Believers were being chased from city to city. They were, they were fleeing for their lives as persecution would come. And so if you, let's say you had moved from, from uh, Ephesus and, and now you're moving to Colossae or you're moving from Colossae to Ephesus or you're, you're fleeing out into further reaches of the Roman Empire to escape persecution, you need a place to stay. Now, the church was not made up of the educated or the erudite in society. The church was made up of 
exceedingly poor individuals, many of whom were conquered peoples who didn't have rights like Paul had as a Roman citizen. So if you had the money to pay for lodging at a place, it's very unlikely that they would accept you. So where were you to go? Where were you to find safe haven? And the answer is with the church. That's why Peter commends it here. Or show hospitality to one another. Now, we don't have that same environment today, but does the command still stand that we are to show hospitality to one another? Yes. We need to be willing to open up our homes to help those. Let me ask you, when was the last time you provided a meal for someone, invited them over, took them out to have coffee or, or a meal? I mean, if we are truly loving our spiritual family, we would be willing to do anything for them. We're willing to do it even at great expense to ourselves. It's amazing how many connections, how, how similar the Old Testament is to the New Testament when you really think about it. The Old Testament can be summed up in two commands, right? Love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength all your mind, and then love who? Your neighbor as yourself. Now, we we know that that's said in the New Testament, and we like to focus on that first part of that section, what we see in the Gospels. And Jesus, there's a rich young ruler who comes to him, and he says this, and Jesus says, you've said well, you're right. Go and, and do these things. And then we are so much like this guy, and that's why I don't think we like the rest of this passage, Because he comes to Jesus and seeking to justify himself because he knows he fails at at least the second part. And intuitively, he likely knows he fails at the first. But he says, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes into a treatise of defining neighbor in the Old Testament. Is that what he does? He tells a parable. Who knows what that parable is called? The parable of the good Samaritan. What does the good Samaritan do? He finds somebody who's in need. He doesn't ignore the need. He takes the person, cares for them, and then out of his own pocket pays for his needs. He shows true, genuine hospitality because he's loving his neighbor. Now, it's interesting, we know that that's what we're supposed to do, but, but it's not just enough to do it. Peter, and of course, God himself is calling us to do it with the right attitude. Show hospitality to one another without what? Grumbling. Without grumbling. Peter understood that there would be a great temptation to tire of being the one who always provides. And in fact, if we can read the the. the, the the church fathers, and they talk about how this attitude among the church was abused by people. In fact, even in the New Testament, we see that there's commands given that, listen, if you're going to come in here and you're not going to work, guess what you also don't get to do? You don't get to eat. People would take advantage of the loving environment that we find in the church. 
And as people take advantage of that, it can be easy if God has blessed you with resources, if God has given you the ability to help others, to constantly be grumbling about the fact, well, I got to take care of somebody else again. And to grumble. You know, things are not much different now than they were when the church started. There's a, a saying among church experts and things that's been around for a long time that 80% of the work needed in ministry is done by 20% of the people. And that refers both to the serving and the financial aspect, the giving. Now, if you're part of the 20%, you're invested, you're giving, you're serving, it can be so easy to become upset at the fact that other people aren't, quote-unquote, pulling their weight. And we can begin to grumble. It can develop resentment and a grumbling attitude. Now, here's the thing. Are we ever allowed to grumble? No. Why? Well, first of all, that attitude shows a lack of the first thing that Peter's talking about, love. You know, parents, you, I mean, maybe you do at times, but genu, genu, generally you're happy to provide for your children. You maybe grumble that they don't like your provision at times, but generally you're happy to care for and provide for your children. Why? Because you love them. And so it should be the same case in the family of God, where you love each other, so we're happy to provide for and care for each other. But secondly, grumbling is not just grumbling at what someone else is doing. It's ultimately grumbling at the one who is providentially in control of all things. It's grumbling against God. And is God not always good? That's why Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that we are to do how many things without grumbling and disputing? How many? All things so that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. And then this is why it's difficult to not grumble, because guess what everyone else in the world around you is doing? Grumbling. People are experts at complaining. Social media is a giant mass of complaining. And what does that show? It shows, it's not, a, it's not a small thing. Grumbling and complaining shows that we are crooked and twisted by sin. And we as believers, we're supposed to what? Shine as lights in a dark world. So Peter calls us to serve through hospitality. Show hospitality to each other. Secondly, then, we serve through varied gifts that we are given. I think this is where we see the connection with the parable of the talents. In that parable, does the master give the exact same things to each servant? No. To one he gives more, to one he gives a little less, and to one he gives a lot less. And Peter is picking up on this. Look, if you've received a gift, what are you supposed to do with it? As each has received a gift, use it to make sure you advance well in your career. Make sure that you're able to make more money. Make sure that you're able to make your life better. Is that what he says? What are we to do with the gifts that God has given us? Use it to serve one another. 
to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then he speaks specifically of two categories of ways that we serve each other. We can serve each other through speaking. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, there's some debate in the commentaries about if this is specifically referencing those who labor in the ministry of the Word. So, pastors, uh, leaders in the church in that, that, that particular idea, teachers. Is he focusing on them? And I think they're included in this group. But I think it goes further than that. I think that he's really speaking of every believer. Because here's the thing. When we come together and we fellowship are we, do we just stare at each other with closed mouths and not say anything to each other? I mean, maybe you prefer that, but no, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're to talk to each other, and our communication must be based and grounded in the oracles of God, the truth of God. Paul bears this out in Ephesians chapter 4. Look, we don't talk corruptingly like the rest of the world does. In fact, how much corrupting talk are we allowed to have? None. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give what? Grace to those who hear. Now, here's the thing. How are my words going to be able to provide grace to people? Like, do do you think my, my opinions about the pirates are going to give grace to people? Is, is that going what to, about, what about my opinion about the Steelers? All right, what about my opinion about politics? That's why Peter tells us that our conversations are speaking as we speak to each other, particularly if we're gifted in those things. It must be grounded to the Word of God, the oracles of God. It must be biblical. That's why... Paul says in Colossians, our speech is always to be gracious. So that means it always needs to be somehow connected with the Word of God. Always. Always. Yes, always. Seasoned with salt so that we may know how to answer each person. So we speak as those who speak the oracles of God, and then we serve each other. Maybe you're here and you think, you know, I, I try to be encouraged in my talk, but I just feel like that's not what I can do. But I can, I can clean a window, or I can, I can wash a dish, or I can serve in other ways. And notice what he's saying here. If we speak, we speak the oracles of God. If we serve, we serve by the strength that God supplies. And then here, here's, here's the thing that both of these things point us to. Where is the power the, the unction for these things coming from? Is it within us? No. I, I'm not to stand up here and give you human opinions. And the same way, when we serve, we're not to serve looking to our own strength. Rather, both things are energized by God Himself, that we are dependent on Him in everything we do in this church. interesting the term serve there is the term used in Acts chapter 6. It's the word deacon, diakonos. And it's a common term that's used about serving others. 
And in fact, in Acts chapter 6, we see a difference being made in these two different categories. The apostles were busy administering and serving tables and helping the widows who weren't being cared for as they ought to. And so they said, look, it's not right for us to do those things. So let's appoint individuals, deacons, who handle those things. You know, I'm thankful that I don't have to figure out all the church's finances. If we did, like I said, you know, I don't know how to do math very well, so who knows what our financial reports would look like. That's not my skill set. Praise God. But does that mean that my role is somehow more important than a serving role? And the answer is no. Not at all. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 16, that Christ takes the whole body, from Christ, the whole body, which is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is what? Working properly. When all of that is happening, what happens to the body? It builds itself up in what? In love. In love. So, when we consider Peter's words here, if you're speaking, you're speaking the oracles of God. If you're serving, you're serving by the strength that God supplies. You have to recognize that you're called to be a good steward of God's varied grace. How are you doing? Are you stewarding what God has gifted you with well? I think one way we can look at it from just an evaluation standpoint is, are you a consumer or a contributor here at Bible Baptist Church? I don't necessarily mean in a financial way, although that can be in mind here, but are you serving? Are you using your giftedness to show genuine love for your brothers and sisters here at BBC? God has given you a talent it's, I've always found it ironic that the, the numerical talent is also the same word that we think of when we think of talents that people have. God's given you gifts. What kind of servant are you being with those gifts? Are you investing in others for the sake of the kingdom? Or are you like that last servant that takes what you have and hides it and only keep it for your own advantage? See, that belies a heart that doesn't love other people. Who does that heart love? Himself. And so we are to have stewardship through service. And then again, all of this comes with strength through God Himself. And then finally, we see the goal of the pilgrim's purpose. Peter closes this section by pointing us to the purpose of it all. Look at the end of verse 11. In order that in how many things? Everything. God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Just quickly, three things I'd like to see about this purpose. It is a comprehensive goal. That in everything. What makes us a pilgrim, what makes us different, is that every aspect of our life is ordered by and shaped by our hope in Christ, every aspect of our lives. 
And that when we are loving ourselves and not loving our brothers and sisters, when we are holding back for ourselves, then we are not truly submissive to our Lord. We're not glorifying Him. You know, God is not pleased when someone comes every Sunday and sings the songs, but cares nothing for the members of the body of Christ. That doesn't glorify Him. And so if we're to be glorifying God every aspect of our lives, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, we do everything to whose glory? God's glory. So it is a comprehensive goal. But then it is a Christ-centered goal. Peter makes the statement that we glorify God through Jesus Christ. Our prayers, our binding together in love, our service, all of it comes through Christ. It is impossible to glorify God apart from Jesus Christ. It is impossible. And so we are called to glorify the Father in Christ in all things. Because here's the reality. Apart from Christ... Can I do anything that is pleasing to the Father? Paul says that I know in my flesh dwells no good thing. So that is why Peter tells us that we're to glorify God through Christ. Because only in Christ do we have the ability to please the Father. Because did Christ ever not please the Father? He perfectly pleased the Father in all things. And so we must glorify the Father in Christ. Look at what Jesus himself says. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So, no question, the Father is glorified in the Son, the Son is glorified in the Father, the Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son. So you've got this cycle of glory going on. So what's the point of all that? Little children. Yet a little while, while I am with you, you will seek me, just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So I give you a new commandment. What? Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another by this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved, love one for another. We've looked at these passages a couple times. It's on the the cover of your bulletin. Why? What's the context of all this? The glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so as we love each other, we glorify God as we do it through Jesus Christ. So it's a comprehensive goal. It's a Christ-centered goal. And then finally, it is a compelling goal. What makes this purpose for the pilgrim so compelling? Because the reality is that only God deserves glory. In fact, only God owns glory. Because look at what he ends with. To him be long glory and dominion. How long? Forever and ever. Amen. 
As often happens as we see in Paul's writings here in Peter, as he's considering the glories of what Christ has done and and the call that we have for each other, it is a compelling goal to, to sort of overflow, and he praises God. He says, because God owns these things. Why is the pilgrim's goal the glory of God? Because eternal glory and dominion belong to the Father and to His Son, Jesus Christ. It is right and good that we worship this God because only He deserves it. Revelation, John sees Christ in heaven and there's this beautiful scene in Revelation 5 where he hears every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. So he is this vast, vast Cosmic, comprehensive chorus is what he's saying. Everything. And what are they saying? To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is the cosmic reality that we now live under. Is God on the throne? Yes. Is the Lamb risen and reigning? Yes. So does He not deserve power and honor and glory and dominion from us for all eternity? Yes. And so, we need to be like John the Baptist. John the Baptist understood this. And this is how he responded. His disciples came to him. Jesus was becoming more popular. And he says, you yourselves bear me witness. I'm not the Christ. I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, here's the thing. We all know the last statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. But why does he say that? Does, does John say that sort of like, oh, you know, I'm now out of... Does he say it like with a downtrodden face? He says it with full joy, with complete satisfaction, with ultimate happiness. He's willing to say, I must decrease. Because he must increase. Because that is the thing that gives me the greatest joy in this world. And so as pilgrims, that must be the thing that gives us the greatest joy in this world. Are you living for your own reputation? Are you living to build your own kingdom? Are you living so that people would recognize you and know you and that you would make a mark on this world? Listen, We're not here to make a mark on this world. We're here to show people who Christ is. We need to disappear in the background so that only Christ is seen. And then that becomes our great joy. That's how we do the Westminster Catechism's first question. The chief end of man is to glorify God, and then in glorifying God, what do we get to do? Enjoy Him forever. 
So the pilgrim's purpose, give glory to God in all things for all time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for Christ. Lord, may our hearts truly find full and complete joy in Him. May He increase and we decrease so that we may delight more and more in His glory. Father, take Your Word, apply it to our hearts and lives. Change us, mold us, shape us more into the image of Christ. We pray this in His name.